one simple rule. Nothing is simple. January 19, 2022. The inspiration, complexity. The ideal art, the noblest of art, working with the complexities of life, refusing to simplify to overcome doubt. Joyce Carol Oates, The Journal of Joyce Carol Oates, 1973 to 1982. I've spent quite some time lately trying to simplify the basics of storytelling so I could teach it, and what I've discovered is that simplicity doesn't exist as a destination. It is always just a starting place. Nothing is only one thing. Everything has nuance. Part of the reason why we've been having so many problems societally is that our desire to simplify and understand everything conflicts directly with the realities of what that thing is. So we live in a constant, uneasy state of cognitive dissonance, our brains wishing to understand all of something, when understanding all of anything is kind of impossible. Our job as writers is to express complex things as simply as possible so the reader can pick up what we're putting down, while allowing the complexity to also exist. It's not easy, but it's worth it. The Fat Orange Cat. Walk and chew gum. Sometimes it's hard enough to have a scene fill one purpose, let alone two. But today, I want you to try it. If you're writing an opening scene, establish your character and setting and get your conflict launched. If you're writing a sex scene, get them banging and escalate your conflict. If you're writing a twist, be sure that whatever you're writing makes sense in both the context of what the reader thinks is happening and what is actually happening. Two narrative birds, one stone. Have fun. The trope. Metaphor. Okay, metaphor isn't exactly a trope. It's more of the dream language of fiction. Metaphor allows one thing to stand in place for another thing, and its power is awesome to behold. You may ask yourself, why use a metaphor to stand in for a thing when you can just use the thing itself? Well, that's just the thing. As I stated earlier, nothing is ever just one thing. So if you want to talk about complicated individuals becoming a mindless mob, you have to walk them from their individual traits, which may include goodness and intelligence, to a mindless mob state. You'll have to work out how the psychology works and walk them slowly to that place so that we can understand why they're acting the way they are. But if the story you want to tell is what happens after the mindless mob attacks, then you've got to spend just a whole bunch of your story real estate on explaining how it all happened in the first place. Or you can just use zombies. The question, dual protagonism and romance. I have an idea for a story, specifically a rom-com, about a couple renewing their relationship after one realizes she's a trans woman and the other a lesbian. In every rom-com I've seen or read, admittedly not a ton, one member of the couple-to-be is the protagonist with the other as the romantic lead. But I can't picture this story without both women being a protagonist. Is there a history of romance or rom-coms where the couple is a deuteragonist? What advice would you give structuring a romance where both members are the protagonist? Double duty. Dear Double Duty, First of all, big points for pulling out deuteragonist. I had to look it up. The definition I found said that the deuteragonist is the person second in importance to the protagonist in a drama, which in romance circles I've heard referred to as the secondary protagonist. But based on your context, I think what you're looking for is a story where both protagonists are equally important. If I'm getting that wrong, let me know. 
Now, to answer your question as I understand it, my advice for structuring this kind of story would depend on whether you're creating parallel but separate conflicts for each of your protagonists, in which case you're setting up two stories that are just contained in the same novel, or if you're doing one conflict shared by co-protagonists. To do parallel stories, you need to create a separate central narrative conflict and separate structures and then just escalate them alongside each other. Susan Elizabeth Phillips tends to structure her stories this way, along with a secondary romance that will often have smaller parallel stories. Match Me If You Can is a good example of that kind of wizardry. The other way to go is with both halves of the romance functioning as co-protagonists in the same conflict, which would mean that they share a goal and are both fighting the same protagonist equally in the fight. They may have different motivations for their goal. Romancing the Stone comes to mind as an example of this, but they share the goal and hence the antagonist blocking that goal. So my first bit of advice is figure out if they share a goal and an antagonist or if they don't. Once you're there, you need to figure out the central narrative conflict or conflicts, depending on your answer to the first question. If they are parallel protagonists with their own individual conflicts, then you need to structure each of their stories and run them independently, having the stories interact with each other so you can develop the romance. If they are co-protagonists, you treat that as you would a single protagonist. One goal, one central narrative conflict, one structure. Hope that helps. Good luck, and I'd love to hear back on how it went. The Practical, The Leftovers. On my recent run through the dark side, I started the HBO series The Leftovers, which has been recommended to me by a bunch of people, but most recently by Joanna Robinson, whose opinions I respect a great deal. And now that I've watched it, I can't tell you what I think about it because I'm still not entirely sure what happened. Did I understand all of it? No. Did it make me think? Yes. Was I entertained? Definitely. So what did I learn about writing from The Leftovers? That women can be written as complex characters with just as much motivation, internal conflict, and moral muddiness as men without sacrificing their character. I mean, I already knew that, but it was lovely to see that reality burning up the screen in this show. Whatever you might think about the rest of it, purely for the writing of the female characters, I would recommend it. Everyone can be complex. Engage in fiction written by people who know that, and it'll improve your own writing. The flip side, nothing is ever just one thing. January 22nd, 2022. Dear writer, as you probably picked up from the Wednesday Digest this week, I've been thinking a lot about complexity, how nothing is ever just one thing. I am so happy to leave this house. You have no idea. I've been working toward this goal of getting gone for so long. It feels like I've never not been working toward it. And now that it's happening, I'm so sad. The thing is, yes, terrible things happened here. I didn't like this house, but he made me buy it. Likely because I didn't like it. He did that kind of shit to me every day. But once he was gone, I was stuck here, killing myself to bring in the income I needed to maintain a house that I hated by myself. And why? The kids. Look, I'm going to be honest with you. I hate being a mother. Being a mother is the absolute fucking worst. Now, maybe your experience is different, and if that's the case, that's awesome. I'm not saying it's the worst for everyone. It was just the worst for me. I hated being pregnant both times. I hated the feeling of something else living inside of me. It's so weird, and you can't have wine or caffeine, and everything you eat has to go through the moral test because baby. I had eating and body issues before I was pregnant, and pregnancy did not improve things. Then you have the baby, and suddenly you no longer matter. You are mom. 
You are honored for sacrifice and reviled for anything that is not sacrifice. Everything is your fault. Everything is your responsibility. If you don't protect them enough, you're a bad mother. If you protect them too much, you're a bad mother. There was no daylight between not enough and too much. And every day I felt like I was failing them no matter what I did. And then I really super fucking failed them. And it took me four years of wearing the hair shirt before I realized I also got hit by the bus that hit them. Let me be clear. The kids never did any of this to me. I did this to me because I bought into the whole societal good mother bullshit. But it still is what it is. Being a mother sucks. I am stating all of this because how much I hated being a mother does not even begin to hold a candle to how much I loved being my kid's parent. They are extraordinary humans, and I am grateful every day that I got them. I hit the kid lottery, y'all. There are no better humans on this earth than my kids, and I will fight you on that. I got to watch them grow up. I got to be amazed at their first independent opinions, their artwork, their kindness, their intensity, their intelligence. That was an amazing experience. And as much as I hated being a mother, I loved being their parent. And now that I'm leaving this house I've hated, where so many terrible things happened, I finally have the space to remember that they grew up in this house. They searched the place for Easter eggs the day we moved in. They helped me make cookies for Santa, and they helped me decorate trees. They watched movies with me, and I got to see them discover technology and stories, my two greatest loves. Sarah played the Game of Thrones theme endlessly on the violin, getting better each time. Cecilia figured out how to fix her own computer by herself when it broke, and I had no idea what to do about it. My favorite memory, and what I miss the most even now is when I was upstairs and they were in the living room together and these sharp peaks of giggles and cackles would break through the sound of whatever I was doing. They almost never fought post-middle school. Mostly, they just cracked each other up. To this day, they are best friends and I am so grateful I got to see that love happen, that I got to be the one who brought them to each other. I take all that with me when I go, I know. And under no circumstances would I want to stay here just to be with the ghost of their love and laughter. That's not how it works. That time is done, and it would be done even if the only memories here were happy ones. Remember when Vision said a thing isn't beautiful because it lasts? Sometimes it is the very temporariness of a thing that makes it heart-achingly beautiful. And here I sit at the intersection of can't wait and don't go, and I realize that nothing is ever just one thing. I can look forward to my new life while at the same time leaning back to hear the joyful ghost of their cackles one last time before I close the door and move on. Everything else.